Lord, we come to you with grateful hearts tonight because of your sovereign care for your people. We thank you for the love that from all eternity selected us to belong to you despite our sins. We thank you for your Son who was sent into this world to give of himself self-sacrificially to stand in our place so that judgment might fall upon him rather than us. We thank you, Father, for your spirit that has given us life and enlightenment and insight, encouragement and guidance, and above all has given us the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments that we might be instructed. We thank you also tonight, Father, for the gift of faith that is ours, not because we are somehow smarter than other people, not because we are more religiously inclined or ethically superior, but simply because you have loved us. We praise you for this mercy and ask that you might take our gratitude and turn it into obedience, that we might give ourselves wholly to you. Help us tonight to open our minds to think through difficult issues, but that we might profitably understand your word and its bearing on our lives, and above all, that we might understand what it is to believe you and to follow after you wholly. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, <clears throat> verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. The last time I taught this class, we got through chapter 10 and looked at the first verse of chapter 11, and I told you at that time, and now I'm going to elaborate at great length, that this definition of faith is an incomplete one. This is not an effort on the part of the author to tell you everything there is to know about the nature of Christian belief or faith. It's not exhaustive, it's not systematic, but it's crucial. And I think not only would it be valuable in general for us to have a, a broader understanding of faith in terms of which we'll read this chapter, but I think we'll appreciate all the more the emphasis that the author is placing here in verse 1 of chapter 11 if we put it in the context of a biblical definition and understanding of the nature of faith. I have a special reason beyond being your pastor and seeing the advantage from a Christian standpoint of doing that study I have a, a special interest in this because a good portion of the work I did in graduate school as a philosopher had to do with the nature of belief or faith, which is one of the standard epistemological, epistemologies, the theory of knowledge, study of uh, how uh, we know what the limits of our knowledge are, how we justify our beliefs, concepts like truth and knowledge and belief and that sort of thing. And um, a good portion of my doctoral dissertation, as I was saying, um, had to do with the nature of believing something. Now, in, in the end, I was trying to point out that it's possible to believe something and yet believe that you not believe it, which is uh, part and parcel of self-deception, as, as I see it anyway. Um, so the whole dissertation was not on this subject, but it was crucial to getting to the resolution of my subject that I had some conception of belief to work in terms of. And so I have kind of summarized for you my understanding of the nature of belief, and then I have gone to the scriptures to show that this understanding comports with the way the word is used in the Bible. And so we're going to have a, some technical material tonight, but I trust that if, if you'll be willing to bear with me and get to the end, that it will prove profitable. Sometimes... Um, the best thinkers, the best philosophers, are those who um, learn to swim underwater the longest. Uh, <clears throat> you have to kind of hold your breath, you know, and, and when you want to give up, you don't. To be a good underwater swimmer, uh, you need to not give in to those initial desires to say, well, this is, you know, this is a little painful, this is a little inconvenient. And good thinkers have to do the same thing. Sometimes you say, oh, what a headache, let's go watch TV, or let's, let's study something easy but you've got to hold your breath and stick with it and stick with it. So if you have to, you know, 15, 20 minutes from now, if you say, boy, this is getting pretty heavy for me, stick with it. It'll be worthwhile when all is said and done. So we're going to study the concept of faith 
or belief. And this calls for two introductory remarks, and then we'll get right into the lesson itself, which is written out for you, and I'll go real slow through it. First of all, the word belief and the word faith are English words. We're going to study the Bible, what it has to say about belief and faith. You need to be aware that, obviously, Paul didn't use the word that you hear as belief or the word you hear as faith. He used Greek words. Actually, he used a Greek word. He had an advantage that we don't, as we look at belief and faith, those are two different words, sound completely different, spelled differently in the English language. But for Paul, he used the verb pistuo and a noun pistis. The only difference is the ending. One is a, a nominal ending and one is a verbal ending. And so it's a lot easier in the Greek to see the connection between believing and faith because the words are so um, like one another. In English, we don't always see that. And I believe that many people get misled uh, just because of that English difference between the vocable belief and the vocable faith. We tend to separate the two as though you can have faith even though you don't have belief. You say, well, that's rather strange, Dr. Ross. And it is, however, I cut my teeth on the philosophy of religion on that issue precisely. The distinction between believing that something is true and having faith in a person is crucial to neo-orthodoxy. You see, the neo-orthodox approach to theology says we may not believe that the words of Scripture are true or the claims are true, but we still believe in or we still have faith in God. To which, of course, I think a conservative and biblical response is, if you can't believe the things God has been purported to say, you can't have faith in him either. But they want to separate those two. So one is a hard attitude, faith. The other is a cognitive thing, belief. Well, Paul, by no stretch of the imagination, would do that sort of thing. I mean, the two are tied together. Pistuo is just the verbal form of pistis. Pistis is a number of pistuos, if I could, I mean, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but um, to have faith in something is to have a lot of particular believings about matters. And yet, faith does have an attitudinal aspect to it. And so that's why we're going to be kind of splitting some very crucial hairs tonight. Uh, good theologians and philosophers do that. that it's kind of the name of the game, uh, splitting hairs, significant ones. And um, so I want to insist that you can't separate faith from believing that certain propositions are true. And yet I likewise want to say you don't understand the nature of believing if you think it is simply cognitive. Belief is also an attitude. Okay? That's the, the first, well, I guess that's the whole introductory thing. Let's launch into this thing. Knowledge entails belief. When someone knows something, they also believe it. Okay. However, you would not say that knowledge entails profession of something. People know things that they would not profess. Sometimes people know all too well things that they can't bring themselves to say. Don't want to believe that they believe it. So I'm not saying that knowledge entails professing or admitting that, you know, when you do pastoral counseling, we get that. I think sometimes people know very well that they're guilty, but they won't admit it. So they know it, but they will not profess it. However, if someone knows that X or Y or Z is true, they also believe that X, Y, or Z is true. Is the opposite also true? Every time we believe something, do we know it, Doug? Every time, that, every time I believe a proposition, is it true that I know that proposition? What two differences do we have to take into account between belief and knowledge? Right. You see, I can believe something and it not be true. And if it's not true, I certainly don't know it. But Doug is right. I may believe something that is true and still not know it because I may believe it and just have no reason for it at all. I just accidentally am right. You know? I guess how many burgers McDonald's will have sold by the end of this year, and I just happened to be right. That doesn't mean that I knew it. It just meant that I believed the truth and I had a good guess. Okay, so it is not true that all beliefs amount to knowledge. 
But it is the case that all knowledge involves belief. Okay? Am I going too fast? We're going to cover a whole course in epistemology in about 45 minutes here. Watch. No. This is important for us because as Christians we're often told that we have faith in God or that we may believe that God's word is true, but we don't know it. And that faith and knowledge are in completely different categories. It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to believe it. I want to insist that I do have faith in God and that I do believe his word, but I also know it. Because the belief that I have is well-grounded, that is, it's justified. Justified in particular by God's own word, but nevertheless justified. Kent? You don't think it would be possible to know something and not believe it then? No. Like, if, like for instance, somebody started flying away. You might say, I don't believe it. And then, like, your, your mind... No, who says, I don't believe it? The person flying away or the person watching it? sitting there watching. Okay. The first footnote here that we're going to get to, which they are indented the way I've typed this out for you, we'll talk about that, that matter. Um, I think it's in the first one. But anyway, we're going to come to that. You know, I, I take that back. Maybe I cut that off when I printed this out. Anyway, I would say that we have to allow in the use of any language for... Um, purposely paradoxical or abnormal uses of words to gain some kind of punch to what we're saying. And so a person might say, I know I won the lottery, but I just can't believe it. Now there's a sentence where you say, oh, see, they know it, but they don't believe it. However, that doesn't make any sense. If taken literally, if they don't believe it, they don't know it either. So what they're getting at is, as hard as it is to imagine this would happen to me, I do know it happened. However, it's just because we know there's a paradox involved, I know it, but I don't believe it, that that sentence carries the punch that it does. I know I won the lottery, but I just can't believe it. That's, that's as like somebody saying, I believe I won the lottery, here's the money, but I don't believe it. And, and you'd say, no, wait a minute. Uh, you're either contradicting yourself or you're using words in such a way that you want to really drive home a point. Okay, so... We have to allow for that, but that's not what you would call your paradigmatic or standard use of the word belief. That is the rhetorical use of the word belief, to make a point. What about the unbeliever I'm glad you brought that up. That's the very reason I wrote my dissertation on self-deception, so that I could properly analyze and explain what Paul is getting at when he says in Romans 1 that there are people who know God and yet refuse to acknowledge it. They know him and yet they don't know him. And if, if you want, I'll give you my dissertation. You can read it, but probably you'd rather I just cut to the bottom line and suggest that what that amounts to is the unbeliever does believe in God and yet he believes that he does not believe in God. And that's why he's called an unbeliever, because he believes that he doesn't believe it. And thus, we call him an unbeliever. And yet, in his heart of hearts, he does believe it. The different, you see, the, there's a different object here to the, two, to the two sentences. What does he believe? In the living God. What does he not believe? About himself, he does not believe that he believes in God. And that's how you avoid contradiction and can explain self-deception in that religious setting, I think. Ellery. I'm not going to get past the first sentence, but this is great. Go ahead. Well, I can go along with that, but something else bothers me about the knowledge being equated to truth. That would mean then that if I have a whole set of pieces of information come together, all fit together, and let's say that that it's based on the world being flat. And someone comes along and, and uh, makes the claim that the world is round. Well, the knowledge that I have now becomes something other than knowledge, false knowledge. No, uh, I think if I understand your illustration, what you're saying is that a theory which appeared to be true because certain aspects of the theory were workable that theory is now exposed as false. Yeah, but what I was getting at was the, 
statement that knowledge implies truth. Well, it does. The, the very concept of knowledge implies that what you know is true. And so, in your illustration, those aspects of the theory which you knew are the true aspects of the theory, but the theory itself was not true. Because you see, false theories can have true premises within them. And so even people who knew that the world was, I mean, who believed, pardon me, that the world was flat, knew that you drowned in the sea if you didn't know how to swim. Okay, well that fits into both of the theories, of course, and so the fact that one theory contained a true proposition doesn't mean that the theory was true. It just means that an aspect of it was. Is it, is it true to say that sometimes we know a thing, and as a matter of fact, our justification for it in reality, I mean, even involving our own minds, rests on something other than we think it does. In other words, we would cite as justification for a thing, um, something which, as a matter of fact, is not our true justification. Yeah, and there are humorous illustrations in epistemological literature of that sort of thing. Okay, where a person, um, okay, let's say I look at the clock and I say it's, uh, someone says, what time is it? I say, well, it's five of eight. Well, it turns out that that clock is unplugged. It's not working at all. But I looked at it just coincidentally at the right time, which was 5 of 8. Okay? Now, did I know that it was 5 of 8? You'd say, well, you looked at a clock. The clock said the right thing. Ordinarily, that appears to be justification. And we would just let that go. But as Doug is shaking his head back there, epistemologists would say, no, you didn't, because the justification you cited was not... a. a a legitimate or it wasn't a, a, a cogent justification. You were resting on something which was false, namely the presumption that the clock was working. Yeah, but beyond that, isn't it true, for, for example, unbelievers know a good deal to be true about their world, but the reasons they would cite for yes. are really very artificial. And this ties into Ellery's remark in a sense. You see, unbelievers know a lot about, um, let's say, uh, the natural world. They know a lot about, I sometimes use the digestive you know, track of a giraffe, or they know how to get a rocket to the moon or something. However, the way in which they would go about justifying their knowledge um, will not hold up. That's part of our apologetic, to say, yes, you know many things, but you can't give an account of your knowledge. Only in terms of the Christian, quote-unquote, theory, the Christian worldview, does it make sense that you could get you know, to the moon with this rocket that you could, you know heal the lion or the giraffe or whatever it is, that the way in which they would go about justifying what they know is often not good, and yet they do know it. And what they're trying to avoid religiously is to acknowledge that there is a God. Well, let's press on. Knowledge entails belief. Of course, there are many kinds of belief of which people are capable, and there are many interesting aspects of belief as belief itself. There's, there are different kinds of belief and there are different aspects of belief. Okay, and I'm going to, I hope that I don't lose you in this. Look at this um, subsection to illustrate that. Sometimes we speak of a mental event as a belief. A mental event means there's something going through my head right now. I'm doing something. I'm believing it. Okay, and so I, I read a book and I say, well, I've come to believe that, da-da-da-da-da. An event took place in my head, which we're calling a belief. And at other times we'd say, you know, you believe the world is round even when you're not thinking about it. In that case, what I say is, while other times, thinking of belief as a disposition to act in certain ways. That is, I wasn't actually having an event of imagining the world to be round, but rather I had a disposition to act in terms of the roundness of the world, and that's called believing it. Or put it this way, do you believe your name to be Doug Jones when you're asleep, Doug? Yes. In the first sense, as a mental event, you'd say, no, you don't, because you're not believing anything when you're asleep, unless, of course, you're dreaming, but I'm not going to get into that. Um, and yet, even when you're not thinking at all, you still have dispositions to believe your name is Doug Jones or the world is round and so forth. 
So belief can be of different sorts, an active mental event or a disposition to act in a certain way. Moreover, each one of these gets into a whole chapter in epistemology in the, in the subject of belief, by the way. Beliefs are held with differing degrees of confidence. I want you to look at that word confidence. In Latin, what does it mean, Marilyn? Con fide. Okay, it's what's with belief, or if you will, what accompanies or goes along with belief. Confidence has to do with believing with a certain degree or, or what have you. For instance, we talk about suspicions. I suspect that this. Or opinions. I have an opinion that. Or convictions. I'm really convicted that. Well, all of those are beliefs, but what's the difference? Degrees of confidence. My, I have low confidence when I suspect it and very high confidence when I'm convicted of it, right? Okay, so here's, that's another difference between beliefs. Continuing, some beliefs are spontaneous, but others are derived by mental investigation and inference. This morning when I got up and sat at my desk, I believed that a bird was chirping outside my window. But I did not study, investigate, work real hard to come to that belief. I just heard it and I automatically believed it. That, by the way, it doesn't mean it's true. Somebody could have been whistling or imitating a bird, and my belief may have been false. My point is the spontaneity of my coming to that belief. And yet other beliefs are very hard won, aren't they? Well, I didn't come to believe certain theories, you know, in psychology or philosophy until I read a lot of books and thought it through and then finally said, that's it. So we don't come to beliefs in the same way. Some are spontaneous, some are hard fought. Some beliefs are subject to voluntary control while not all seem to be so. This has been a real controversial point, but I think it's true. You cannot say that belief is completely voluntary. There are some beliefs which, you know, it just you can't get away from. And yet, there's a sense in which many of our beliefs are subject to our uh, volition. Okay? Uh, the example I use in my dissertation is, if I'm looking out a window seeing the rainfall, it's probably going to be almost a a point of psychological aberration to bring myself to say the rain's not falling because I'm looking right at it. But on the other hand, I can control to what degree I believe Ronald Reagan was guilty of the um, Iran, uh, the selling of uh, guns to uh, Iran, pardon me, right? Because a lot has to do with what? My initiative, how much evidence I want to look at, how I want to evaluate it, and I can voluntarily say, no, I just want to do this, I want to do that about that. So my belief about Reagan's guilt or innocence is to a certain degree under my voluntary control, but not about my looking at the rain out the window. Some beliefs are given personal avowal. Personal, that's, that just means I will avow to people. I, I really believe that he was innocent. Sometimes we avow our beliefs. Other times, um, we hold them without much reflection at all. For instance, the bird chirping out the window. I believe the bird was chirping, but I probably just kept typing right along without even bothering to say, oh, I believe a bird is chirping out the window. I didn't reflect on it, but I did spontaneously believe it. Some beliefs have numerous or important consequences. Now, I hope all of us will understand that. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that has an awful lot of consequences, whereas others are relatively insignificant. Okay. For instance, I might believe that there are, in the city of Newport Beach right now, there are um, 17 maroon cars. That need not have much significance at all. In fact, I, I may believe there's a hole in my sock. Well, maybe that is significant, I don't know. But it, there are beliefs that we hold that really don't, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference to us. Some beliefs are normative for us. That is to say, we use the belief to regulate our lives. It's because I believe in the innocence of my son or I believe in the fidelity of my wife that I operate in terms of that. I let that belief control what I do. Um, some beliefs are even incorrigible. That is, they are held so fervently that they can't be corrected. I would not give them up. Uh, I, I will not allow anything to correct this. By the way, I think that's part and parcel of what it is to be a Christian, to so believe the word of God that nothing could shake that. And some are maintained only by con um, concentrated effort. Okay? I want to believe in the innocence of Ronald Reagan. I may have to work real hard to continue believing that. Make up your own illustration if you're sensitive about Reagan. 
Okay, a little more. Just to, I'm just trying to show you the vast variety of circumstances, styles, and, and aspects of belief. Some beliefs are irrational. It's really funny. You read uh, people in epistemology who often come to very highfalutin conclusions about the nature of belief, and they just arbitrarily exclude all examples of irrational belief, because irrational beliefs don't fit their theory. And yet, as a matter of fact, people are irrational. And there are genuine beliefs. People believe things inconsistently. As much as a logic class is taught to keep you from doing it, people are inconsistent in their beliefs. And yet you read the literature, and there are people who just have this kind of pristine, pure world where all beliefs fit into a nice, coherent pattern in a person. That's just not true. Now, in all these cases, however, we are still dealing with what is legitimately called belief. Okay, so please remember the richness of that concept, the diversity that we're talking about, the, multi, the multiple ways in which it comes to expression. Yes, Jay. Uh, no, actually, I would say that the, the confidence applies to the strength of the attitude as well. That, that the attitude... Relief is a kind of attitude, is what I'm going to say. Pat. Okay. Yeah, but there are cognitive dispositions, too. Oh, that's what I Okay, so let's, th let's think about this a minute, because my guess is you're just brave enough to ask what other people are wondering, too. Um, there's a difference between an event and a disposition. This window over here, that may be a poor illustration, because there's lead in it and so forth, but I'm sure even that's true. That window has a disposition to break, Right? What's it going to take to break it? Well, someone's going to have to throw a heavy rock hard, okay? But now, is the breaking of the window the same as the breakableness of the window? Hmm. One's a disposition, the other's an event, okay? Belief is like that. Sometimes belief is the disposition that we have, a cognitive disposition to respond. If we were asked, you know, uh, how many amendments have there been to the Constitution? You might say, oh, and give the answer. Uh, but you weren't thinking about that before you were asked. The disposition to respond that way was there, even though the event of responding was not. Okay, so belief is sometimes an active mental event, and sometimes it's a disposition that we have to act in certain ways in terms of that. Does that help? Belief is both the brittleness of the window and the breaking of the window. Yeah, you don't reflect much on it. Right. However, that's not exactly what I'm getting at when I speak of a disposition. Because you have reflected a little on it when you hear the bird chirp. Very little. Well, do you have a name while you're sound asleep? No. Okay, why can't you have a belief while you're sound asleep? Well, because a name is something that the five-year belief seems to be an action. Pat, do you have a name when no one's applying it to you? Okay. So again, the active use of something is not the only way in which it exists. And, dispos and dispositions exist differently than events exist. Good. That's right. Yeah, in fact, there's going to be, once we get some of these distinctions down, then we can talk about real importance like losing faith, having your faith shaken, and what does that really amount to? And how do we rectify it? Okay. Attempting to take this... I don't know if I'm going to make it through tonight. I really thought this was going to be a short lesson, but uh, I hope you'll pardon me if we continue it next week. I think this is valuable. At least some of you are tuned in. I, I hope all of you are. Attempting to take this diversity... Go ahead. Can I say that uh, dispositions are principles 
Now, a principle, um, if I understand the way you're using it, a principle would be a certain kind of proposition. Okay, here's a here's a proposition or an assertion: the rabbit ran across the road. But a principle would be a proposition such as um, run over all rabbits that run across the road. That's my principle of life. Okay, but in neither one of those cases is that a disposition. Now, I may have a disposition to run over rabbits, and I may have a disposition to believe that rabbits run across the road, but there's a difference between a disposition and a principle. Now, you might want to say a disposition is a settled principle of action within me. That is a certain state of my being, a settled, a settled principle, meaning a state of being. In fact, I'm going to say in, in a minute, or if we get there, that beliefs are mental states. But, uh, but I would distinguish the English word state or disposition from principle. Attempting to take this diversity into account, we might characterize belief as, okay, now hold your breath, swimmers, here we go, as a positive cognitive attitude toward a proposition, an action-guiding mental state on which a person relies, whether intermittently or continuously, in his theoretical inferences or practical actions and plans. Okay. We'll have a memory quiz on this next week. Now, okay, let's, let's go real slow and get each part of this. A positive cognitive attitude. Cognitive having to do with my mental life, right? Okay, it's a positive one, not negative. That is, it's affirmative. I'm affirming something cognitively. It's a positive cognitive attitude toward a proposition. Okay, a sentence. The rabbit ran across the road, or what have you. And now, appositionally, I explain. This is an action-guiding. Action-guiding, it's something that, that kind of steers the way I behave, steers my conduct. It's an action-guiding mental state. There's a state of mind mental state, a state of mind, a settled disposition that helps guide my actions. We call that a belief. It's one on which a person relies. I rely on that in my theoretical inferences or my practical actions. By a theoretical inference, that means um, I may rely on uh, the theory that atoms contain electrons and yet I may never do anything in my behavior that reflects that atoms contain electrons. Uh, the, the fact that atoms contain electrons might be, in fact in my life probably is, completely a theoretical issue. I've never done anything about discovering electrons, putting chemicals together in terms of that. What, it's just been I've learned chemistry and physics and so forth and so it's all theoretical inferences for me if you will, what is we'll call it, my mental life, or my academic life. But then there are some beliefs that go beyond my academic life and affect, you know, whether I buy this soda or that soda at the store, uh, whether I eat lunch or not eat lunch, uh, whether I associate with this person or I don't associate with that person. And so some beliefs guide my actions, some beliefs guide my thinking process. Okay? That's all we're saying here. It's a mental state on which I rely in my academic and my personal life. Now, I put parenthetically, my relying can be intermittent or it can be continuous. You know, for a while I believed in the innocence of, uh, or I'll put it this way, for a while I believed in the guilt of Lee Harvey Oswald, but then I didn't. But then I reconsidered and then I did believe in it again. There's an intermittent belief. That happens, doesn't it? I mean, it's a bad illustration probably, but that sort of thing happens. And then there are some beliefs that I continuously rely on. I just never never have a gap in them at all. Okay, Jim? The issue of if we believe something and we act in opposition to that belief, mm -hmm. is it really a belief? That? That's right. What we would say in terms of this definition of belief is that a person might act out of character, might have, if you will, inconsistent beliefs or behavior inconsistent with his belief. However, if that, in, if that alleged inconsistency were to become so consistent 
we would say the person's a hypocrite. Okay? I tell you, I don't believe that blacks are inferior to Caucasians. Okay? I say that repeatedly. However, I'll never sit down at a table to have a drink with a black man. Or I, I won't hire a black person. And on and on and on. And let's say you built up all this evidence. Finally, you'd say, you know what, Dr. Bonson, you're just a hypocrite. You say you believe in racial equality, but your behavior betrays it. So you're right. We do look at a person's actions as what? A key to his beliefs. Didn't Jesus teach us to do that? By their fruits ye shall know them. James says, oh, you may say you have faith, but where are the works? Okay, so we're right to reason that way. My only caution is we must realize that because of our own human foibles and sin and inconsistency, not every... Um, thing that we do that's inconsistent with our profession proves that we really don't believe that, that we're just hypocrites. It may show that we are morally weak, too. Okay. Joe. Is it reasonable, then, to say that, that you have your general belief and that it can be conditioned by minor disbeliefs, like saying, as an example, I believe that to live a life of sin at large um, would be to prove myself an unbeliever and that, and that that's the avenue to hell rather than heaven. But we condition our general belief that we must be obedient in order to arrive at heaven, not that that's the cause of it. Yes. Uh, but that we condition it by saying, well, we'll be all right to do it this time. But if you condition, you can condition that general proposition to death. That's right. But you see, all of those conditions are beliefs too. Yeah. And so I may come and say, listen, Joe, we need to do some counseling. Your beliefs don't really hang together very well. Okay, and so I know that you mean business. You're sincere when you profess this. But all these other beliefs and all these qualifications you make tend to gut your original conviction of any real, you know, fortitude or substance. Okay? We're going to look at each aspect of this. Do we need to come up for air for a minute? Okay, back down in. The different aspects of this characterization can be briefly explained. <laughs> promises, promises. can be briefly explained. The mental states or cognitive attitudes which we call a person's beliefs are distinguished from each other by the propositions which are their intended objects. That's real fancy philosophical language for saying the difference between one belief and another, the way you individuate them is, is in terms of what is actually believed or, if you will, the sentence, the proposition that is said to be believed. What's the difference between believing that the Lakers won the championship and believing that the Raptors crossed the road? The difference just is the sentence, the Lakers won the championship and the rabbit crossed the road. Okay? So that we don't get some idea that beliefs can just be all blended together in one's head. I mean, we have different beliefs, and someone says, okay, what differentiates them? And all I'm saying is the sentences that are believed. The sentence that's believed is the object of the belief. You understand that? I believe something. The something is the object believed. I hit the ball, I believe the sentence. Okay. What What's that? What would be two separate, two separate beliefs would be the believing of sentence A and the believing of sentence B. No, that, that's the whole point I'm getting at. Moreover, this also indicates that when someone says, I believe sentence A and I believe sentence A, he doesn't have two beliefs, he has one. He has two beliefs. Well, you can say that's the only distinction, but what I'm saying is that's the big distinction. That's the crucial thing. Right. That's how we count beliefs. <laughs> I told you we'd cover a whole epistemology course in a half hour here. We doing okay, Doug? Have I made any faux pas yet? Okay. <laughs> I keep watching. These graduate students tend to be sharp, you know. Okay, belief is, in distinction from merely entertaining a thought or a hypothesis, a positive attitude toward a proposition. Stop and think about that. You may entertain in your mind, very actively, the idea that the world is flat. That doesn't mean you believe it. You're just entertaining it as a, as a hypothesis or um, you're just entertaining a thought. So belief must be a positive. You kind of made a commitment. You've said, yes, that's it. You've affirmed it. 
a positive attitude toward a proposition, meaning that one relies on it. When I believe something, I'm relying on that, either theoretically or practically, but I'm relying on it. Notice this, whether I do it self-consciously or not. If I self-consciously rely on a sentence, that means that I can tell you I'm relying on it. I can say, I believe the rabbit crossed the road. But I may believe the rabbit crossed the road without being self-conscious about it, not assenting to it. Okay. But I, uh, the point here is, getting back to the sentence, meaning that one relies upon it in guiding his actions. When a cognitive state up here guides my actions, I've got a belief. I've affirmed it. I'm acting in terms of it. And those actions, please don't get lost now. This is not hard. Those actions of which I'm speaking can be mental actions or verbal actions or bodily actions. Those are all ways in which we act. What would be a mental action? For example, drawing an inference from certain propositions. Okay, I believe that all men are mortal. I believe that Socrates was a man. Now, here's a, here's a mental action. I draw the inference, Socrates is mortal, or was mortal. Okay, that's mental actions. However, in order to teach this tonight, I had to engage in verbal actions, didn't I? I had to say all those words out loud. Asserting something to be the case is a kind of action. And then, of course, bodily actions are what we usually think of. Uh, purchasing the item you believe to be the best buy at the market, because you believe it's the best buy. So, the actions consequent upon a belief are not always of all three kinds, though. Notice that I may believe something, but I don't always draw mental inferences from it or verbalize it or act in a bodily way upon it. But I act in some way upon it. People have been known to outwardly behave in terms of belief which is too painful to verbally assert. Think about this. What if you... I'm sorry for the tragedy of the illustration. Don't take me wrong, but you have to give pungent ones to make a point sometimes. What if one day you're driving, you're backing down your driveway and you ran over your three-year-old son? Please turn tape over at this time. My guess is we could find things in your behavior that indicates you know very well you killed your own son, and yet you may not be able to say it. You may not be able to say, I killed my own son. Indeed, even what people verbally assert to be their beliefs is subject to deception and error. I've already used this illustration. Your friends may recognize, in light of your social behavior, the hollowness of your avowal of racial equality, even when you do not suspect yourself of insincerity. You may think, I really do believe in the equality of all races, and yet after a while your friends say, you know, just from the way you're acting, though, it doesn't appear that you really believe that. It should be further noted that a belief need not always be manifesting itself. Back to dispositions, Pat. The window need not always be breaking in order to be breakable. The mental state can often be quiescent, and even its active mode may be merely periodic, depending upon the person's changing circumstances and other attitudes or desires. That is, beliefs come to expression periodically. They don't always come to expression. However, the mental state's causal capacity, the disposition, the causal capacity to affect mental, verbal, or bodily activity is not dependent upon some outside stimulus. You can imagine a behaviorist saying, well, beliefs are just conditioned responses, and I'm not saying that at all, but can be exercised at will by the person who believes the proposition in question. So I can be walking around my house someday and, and, have, and just say, the Lakers won the championship without anybody asking me, without any stimulus and so forth, to show that it's not just a conditioned response, but that that belief is something I can exercise and verbally assert at will. Wow. Now, this is a lot of philosophy, Dr. Bonson. I mean, we've read one verse of the Bible, and you've given this complicated theory of belief. Is this a biblical view of belief? What I'd like to do, I know we have some questions, but I'm going to start going through this to show the aspects of what I've taught you are in fact reflected in the Bible. That this, I, I think, is a theologically grounded philosophical theory. Yes?
Yes. It might never, ever be expressed, but the disposition to be expressed was there. Someone may never ask me what uh, 373 times 3 is, and yet I do believe, whatever it is, I'd have to do the math. So that's something that, that would be there, but there's never an occasion for it to come to expression. Okay, now the tough part. Is this really a biblical view of belief? The various aspects of this conception of belief are reflected in the biblical witness about the nature of belief or faith. Remember, same word in Greek virtually, pistuo, pistis. Knowledge is not separated from belief, as though, you know, it's one thing to know X, another thing altogether to believe it. Uh, and so notice the interchangeability of those terms in verses such as, and let's turn down our Bibles to Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. You notice how faith and knowledge go hand in hand here? He doesn't say, this is faith, not knowledge, or this is knowledge, not faith. He says both faith and knowledge are involved. The same uh, thing. First uh, John chapter 4 Verse 16, turn to 1 John 4, the 16th verse. And we know and have believed the love which God has in us. We know and we believe, but on some theories that are given, you can't know and believe the same thing. Those are different kinds of mental states. But the Bible says we know it and we believe it. Yes. Oh. Uh, we know and have believed. The word believed here is pastuo. And know is different. And know is different, yeah. Although I'm not sure which Greek word it is because I didn't bring my testament. I'm sorry. And then 1 John 5, verse 5. And who is he that overcomes the world but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What's the one I wanted? Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God is come. Okay. So you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but you know that he's the Son of God. Those go hand in hand. You can put it either way. And you might ask the question, well, Dr. Bonson, why does the biblical writer sometimes say believe and sometimes say no? And there's a reason for that. Oh, the reason for that is that sometimes the emphasis is upon the certainty of it. We know it. Sometimes it is on the trusting attitude toward it. We believe it. But the two are not in different worlds. They're both, if you will, different sides of the same coin. Um, and I think we have time to look just a bit further. Belief is a positive attitude, I say. Notice Hebrews 11.1, 1, which is uh, the kickoff point of our lesson tonight. Once again, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. It's a positive attitude. Or consider James 1, verse 6. But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. Notice the positive aspect of that. You don't doubt. You ask in faith. So belief is a positive attitude, and it's a positive attitude toward propositions which have been heard or read. I'm not going to look at all these verses because this is something you shouldn't dispute. But let's let's take a couple of obvious ones. Romans 10:14. What is it that's the object of faith or belief? Romans 10, verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? Okay, or um, John 5, verse 24. John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes him that sent me has eternal life and comes not into judgment, and so forth. I won't look up the rest of them, but I will take one question here to end on. 
Well, Dr. Bonson, we've read here not only that we believe what we've heard and believe the word, but we also believe him. What's the difference between believing a proposition and believing a person? Okay. Okay. Well, because I, I be, this is going back from the question that I just asked, but um, I believe something um, weakly, and I say, I would suppose this is the case. But I wouldn't bet a lot on it. I'd bet some. No, 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 that's not true. I would bet something, but I wouldn't bet a lot. On the other hand, there are some things I believe so firmly, I'd bet a whole bunch of money on it. And so both are genuinely beliefs. However, they're held with different degrees of strength. Yes, Scott? That's right. That's right. Exactly. Okay, but now what's the difference between believing a proposition and believing a person? Okay, um... Uh, I don't know, I'm trying to decide. Okay. Dick, go ahead. When you believe in a proposition, if you are subject, first of all, the, the, uh, a proposition is simply a statement in and of itself, or it's a, it's a one system of fact in and of itself, and, you, and might be said to be readily verifiable, but it may not be. But it simply is it's a statement, it's, a, it's, it's something that can be judged whether true or false, whereas if, it, if it's a person, it's an entire system of belief. Okay. Okay, actually, that's, you're right on something here that I'm going to get to after this initial distinction has to be drawn, because that has to be said. But let me try this on you, Dick. How about if you came and said something to me, and I say, I don't believe what you said, but I believe you. Wouldn't you tend to look at me a little quizzically and say, what? I say, no, I believe, I believe you, but I don't believe the sentence you just stated. No. No, here it's a very confused case. What I think you want to say is, if you believe me, believe what I say. Right? And so the difference is not that big. When we say we believe God, that's a way of saying we believe what God says. However, in the case of certain beliefs in people, now there are, um, let's say I go to McDonald's and I order something, the person comes back and says, we're out of French fries. And I say, well, I believe you. That probably is not a case where I'm willing to say, in my whole life I give to you, and no matter what you say, I'll follow. You know, but I believe that one sentence. I don't know much about you, but I believe that sentence, okay? Other cases, you know, when you say you believe your wife, hopefully it carries a little bit more weight than just, well, in this particular case. In the case of God, when we say we believe God, we mean anything you say, I believe. It's the whole system, as you put it. You're right. To believe the person is to trust him. Now, this goes a step beyond just believing what he says. When you have faith in God, the reason you believe whatever he says is because you trust him to behave, to act in a way which will always be in accordance with what he said. And so, I mean, there, we're really, we intensify the, the sense in which I, when I say, I believe you, just please, in your own minds, I, I know I have to quit, just in your own minds, imagine different settings from the most trivial to the most religiously significant, or I say to a person, I believe you. You could believe in a person's integrity and not believe very much in what they say. Yeah, and that's a possibility in a fallen world, too, to say, I believe you're a sincere person, I don't believe you're an accurate person. But in the case of God, I would put that at the highest level when I say, I believe you, God. That means I trust you. You're not going to break your promises, and whatever you say is true. That's what religious faith is all about. And that's why, although we'll finish this next week, go back to Hebrews 11.1. 1. In light of all of this diversity and all these aspects and, and various parts of belief, notice what the author of Hebrews is stressing. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. How can you have a conviction about things not seen? Because God said it. 
And these people were willing to act in terms of it. They staked a whole bunch on what might be, from an empirical or scientific standpoint, very little. Did God show Abraham that he would raise the dead? No, but Abraham was willing to believe it and act in terms of God's ability to raise the dead. See, if that comes through to your heart, then I, this lesson's are worthwhile. Hebrews is stressing that though there are any different, many different ways in which we can say pistuo or pistis, when it comes to God, it's a conviction of things not seen because it's his word which settles it for us. Okay, there was, uh, right here, Lori. I can't hear you, Lori. Well, I would say he does believe in God, but he thinks of himself as not believing in God, and so he's called an unbeliever. For instance, here's a, here's a person whose behavior contains two different kinds of evidence. One, that he doesn't believe in God. He stands up and he curses God's name. He tells people, I'm an atheist, I've never believed that kind of stuff. So there's behavior that indicates he's relying on a proposition, namely, there is no God. And yet the person is fearful of dying. Or the person um, believes in moral absolutes when he can't give any other account of it apart from the existence of God or something like that. In which case we'd say he does believe in God, and yet he doesn't want to think that of himself. Yes. Yeah, I'm saying that people who say they don't believe in God really do believe in God anyway, and that they have emotional and personal reasons for wanting to um, to lead themselves from the confession of God's existence. In a sense, conversion amounts to admitting the truth about yourself, that you knew God all along. Isn't that right? In a sense, conversion is stripping away all of the hypocrisy, all the lies, all the attempts to suppress the truth and say it was true. God was there, and I was the guilty one. And in this state, you're not the faith or are you? No, I am. I'm saying that to believe something is to have faith in it. However... In English, when we say have faith in it, we usually mean have faith in a person or more than just one proposition. And yet, there is that use of the English expression, I have faith in that sentence. The rabbit crossed the road, I have faith in it. But it's a little abnormal. We ordinarily say, uh, Joe said the rabbit crossed the road, and I have faith in him. He wouldn't say that if it weren't true. But that's an English distinction. It's not a distinction in Greek. Okay, it's pistuo pistis, and 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 that will help us to understand that every belief has that attitudinal aspect to it that we call trusting. The difference is the degree of trust, the expression of the trust, the circumstances of the trust, and so forth. Okay, thank you very much for being underwater swimmers tonight. That was good. We're all going to come up for air now and. Uh, Next week, it'll be much easier because what we'll do is we'll continue through these paragraphs, going over the biblical passages substantiating this concept. And then once again, we'll go back to Hebrews 11.1, 1, and we'll see why the author of Hebrews now stresses this particular element of faith in God, that it is a conviction of things not seen. And um, if you want to really get something out of next week's lesson, read Hebrews 11 a couple of times at least this week. And just watch how those illustrations just come to life now, just pop out at you. By faith, Abraham went into a country, what? He didn't know. By faith, he was willing to sacrifice his son, believing God would raise the dead if he had to. By faith, men did such and such. And it all comes down to what? If God says it, I'm willing to stake my life on it. Okay? Doug, would you lead us in prayer?